everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Welcome this morning. We are in our second week of our liturgy series. Liturgy means... Liturgy means the work of the people. Okay, let's do it again. The liturgy means. Hey, Brian. The, yeah, you guys are such good students. Like you, I appreciate the Hibbards. They come, they listen, they participate. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they were delights in class to have too. Uh, well, this is this is really good. It's good to be together. Um, man, our lights are bright. We need to get it like a little higher or something. I need Dale. Can you get like longer? <laughs> longer light trees. Uh, all right, well, a lot of changes around here, a lot of good stuff. We, uh, we are expanding our usage of the building, and our, the Wonder School is going to be adding two classes this fall. We're going to have about 50 families involved with Wonder School. Um, sports and Arts Camp, there were 60 leaders. There was actually more people at the Sports and Arts Camp yesterday than there are today in church. <laughs> That's a great problem to have, including like some of our neighbors and friends who aren't a part of Redemption Hill are jumping in because they believe in the mission of reaching our neighborhoods, and that's a really good thing. So this week, as you're getting ready, uh, number one, send a text to anybody with kids you know and invite them. Um, it's, it's a great way for them to experience what it's like to be a part of a close-knit, extended spiritual family like what we're trying to create with our microchurches here at Redemption Hill. And secondly, if you've got a buddy who you want to have help you either run your team or run your station, invite them. A lot of people are connected to us because we invited them to serve. Before they even believed in Jesus, they served alongside of us at camp or with some of our student ministry stuff. We, be, we think that service is, is, an, is an on-ramp to the kingdom. We think that there's people who want to do what God wants to do. They're what in the New Testament, what they would have called God-fearers, people who are drawn to Jesus and drawn to his people um, even before they understand it. And so we want to invite those people in. So if you've got friends, invite them along. The more, the merrier. You literally cannot have, because let's be honest, it's just a party for us to hang out with our friends and the kids are just there, right? Like this is, this is for us. We're going to have a great time the next two weeks. Um, a lot of you are serving at both camps because you couldn't stand missing out on your friends at the other camp. And that's okay. I'm going to do that too. It'll be a lot of fun. All right, so last week we talked about liturgy and what it means. We talked about what worship was, which we, we dove all the way back into a 10,000-year-old word, one of the oldest words that we have, the idea of worth, something's ability to withstand testing. That's what worth means, is it, is it holds its metal. It can do what it needs to do when it's under fire. And so when we worship, we're saying that that thing is worthy of our trust. So that's what we do when we gather. And that's uh, two or three of the songs this morning already have been about this idea where we look at how God has continued to show up and continued to care for us, continue to do what we need. And then out of that, we say, okay, I've seen God come through, therefore I can put my faith in you for what comes next. That's what worship fundamentally is. And so our work is to lean in and put our trust in because God has shown himself worthy. He's shown himself to come through when he's tested by our needs. That's why we talk about the idea of stacking rocks into an Ebenezer as a memorial of God's care for us. And we talked about liturgy, which is the work of the people. This is an extension of our priesthood series, where we're talking about how we as priests do the work of worshiping by participating in the kingdom of God. And it's changed now that there is no formal temple where we must learn the cultic rituals of animal sacrifice to um, show that we trust God. Now, the Holy Spirit dwells in his people when we gather, 
we are not only his priests, but we are literally together the temple of God's presence. And so the work that we do together is the work of God's kingdom. And we talked last week about how our current liturgies are shaping us. Liturgies are the things that we do. When we talk about the work of the people, we're talking about the ways that we spend our lives and our time. That is our liturgies. And so you probably have a liturgy to your work. You probably have liturgies to your family. And what uh, James K.A. Smith calls cultural liturgies, which is we are shaped by the rhythms of things that we do. Literally, what you do over and over again is who you become. I want to ask you this. How many, how many times a day do you reach into your phone pocket? Which, which is your phone pocket? Mine's, mine's a left. I'm, I'm right-handed, so I have a left phone. Um, how, how many of you felt tempted to grab your phone when I did that? Clint, <laughs> slowly. <laughs> Don't know what to do with my hands. Uh, yes. When you, when you grab it, when you take your phone out, what are the three or four apps that you, you cycle between looking at notifications? What you do is who you're becoming. These small habits, maybe it's around coffee or food or entertainment or work. What our bodies do, and like there's some, there's some evolutionary theory around it, but I think that evolutionary theory is literally design theory. When we think about it, the way that our brains work is the base of our skull is what they call the reptile part of our brain. It's, it's the one that does all of the instinctual work for us. And so when we're in a fight or flight kind of mode, the base of our skull, the, I think it's the amygdala, I'm not a brain scientist, but this is what I understand. The base of your skull, basically it, it just grows out of the, um, the nerve endings in your spinal cord. They, all they do is react. They look at the world around them and say, am I afraid? Am I safe? If I'm afraid, I'm going to act one way. If I'm safe, I'm going to act another way. And what happens is our brain is shaped by all the decisions that we make in how we live our lives, especially that reptile brain that's shaped for immediate responses. And so a lot of you are probably in counseling or dealing in your discipleship groups around What's happening in the base of your skull when you feel afraid? All day, your, your body is constantly dealing with fear and is trying to figure out how to keep you safe. And what's happened is you've experienced trauma in the past. You've experienced formative memories that have shaped your response to stress in really negative ways. This is what liturgies do. They shape us. And what our brain wants to do is it wants to be really efficient. Um, Donald Miller, who's both uh, like a, a Christian writer and also a, a marketing expert in a weird kind of dichotomy, a lot like me, um, he, he talks about how when you look at something, your brain is trying to create connections so it doesn't have to work very hard. It's trying to conserve energy. And so it uses the, the base of your skull, that reptile brain, to make fast decisions so that you don't have to think. That's why at the end of the day, when your kids ask you a question, you say, don't ask me another question. Because your brain is exhausted, it doesn't have any more energy, and it can't do executive functions that the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex take a lot, that's actually the part of your body that uses the most calories per square inch is this part of your brain. And when it runs out, it kind of moves backwards to this, I'm just going to react to what happens to me. This is why liturgies and how we live shape us, because what we do with our frontal and our prefrontal cortex shapes the ways that we react to stress and response in the back of our brains. It's a lot like um, I'm a coach, and when I'm, when I'm working with my players in soccer during the season, you can, once they're on the field, I have almost no say over what they do. Like, once they're playing... They, I don't know if you've ever coached, but they can't even hear you. You're 20 feet away, and you tell them, move left, and they, have, they don't even know who you are. They've lost all sense of space and awareness. So once they're on the field, it's all instinct. And so what you try to do when you're training up a team is you try to shift their instincts so that they do the same thing over and over again in the same 
situations so that they don't have to use their prefrontal cortex to make decisions about strategy on the field. That's why liturgies are so important, is they shape our instincts, how we live. Uh, here's a couple of quotes we talked about last week, but I want to hit them again. James K. Smith says, Liturgies aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. Okay? Liturgies aim our love. They, they're literally the things that shape how we, how we value things, how they shape and aim our love to different ends by training our hearts through our bodies. Okay? Our hearts are trained by our body's actions towards a direction that we love. And so love is a choice that we make over and over again so that when we are stressed, when we're afraid, when we're lonely, when we're scared, when we are unsure, if you choose love in those moments, it's because you chose love over and over and over again in creating habits and liturgies. He says this, it says, it's not that we start with beliefs and doctrines and then we come up with worship practices that properly express these cognitive beliefs but rather we begin with worship and articulated beliefs bubble up from there. Our doctrines are the cognitive, theoretical articulation of what we understand when we pray. So we start with worship, literally a response to existing in the world and seeing God at work, and then all of the ways that we construct our theologies are to make sense of our experience in worship. It's much more one direction than the other, and we like to believe as rational, postmodern Western thinkers, that we choose what we believe through thoughtful interaction with ideas. That's not why you choose what you believe. You choose what you believe because you want to belong to a group, and you choose what you believe because it makes sense to your body. And so if you want to change what you believe to be in alignment with what God wants, you have to change how you live so that it makes sense to your mind. That's crazy, right? Is this different than what we've all heard growing up, which was, if you change your thinking, your body will follow? There's this deep interplay between our minds and our bodies that we need to continue to deconstruct. Cultural liturgies are shaping us constantly, and they're shaping us to value the things of this world, not the things of the kingdom. The world around us is going to give us a cycle of consumer, consumerism, materialism, debt, stress, work. That's the cycle. Consume, use material, get into debt, work. It's always driving us to feel afraid, and the work is the result. The overwork of our bodies and our time is the result of a cultural liturgy. The world that we live in loves debt because debt makes you so worried that you'll perform and that you will create value for cor corporations. The corporations that you work for want you to be in debt. It goes as far as, I, I know you've probably seen movies where a big firm will hire you and they'll give you a mortgage that they control and they will give you a lease on your car so that you work enough to pay for the things that they've provided for you. It's like a company store in a coal mine. It's what these cultural liturgies are built around. It's the narratives that we hear. We also have these cultural liturgies around international conflict, which leads to war, which leads to production of war materials, which leads to our country being in debt, which leads to us raising taxes, which leads to us going to war, to pay for. You see how there's these circular things that shape us as a people. In the world around us, we're hearing all these cultural liturgies around what sex and gender and entertainment are for, and that we, we are shaped by our liturgies of experiencing the narratives that are given to us. The social media that we consume 15 seconds at a time, these dumb little funny videos and you know, gurus on TikTok and Instagram are telling us who we are. They're shaping that part of our brain that is our instincts. So if we want to change and grow in the way of Jesus, it requires that we transform the habits and the experiences that shape us. These liturgies are about the rhythms and habits that shape us in worship. So what do you worship? 
What do you put your faith in? What patterns do you rely on to shape your responses to the flash daily decisions that are made by your instincts? This summer is all about crafting a new rule of life, a new set of liturgies that will shape us in the way of the kingdom rather than in the way of the world. So what is a rule of life? We talked a little bit about it last week, but a a rule of life is a commitment to live your life in a particular way. It's meant to be crafted with prayer and discernment in partnership with God as you consider the way that God made you, the values that he's inscribed upon your heart. And once they're written, it serves as a tool that can help you make decisions for your life and determine how best to order your days. So a rule of life is a true north where we set out, here's what we think God has called us to, here's how we think he's called us to live, and here's how I'm going to then live it out day in and day out. The first example of the Christian rule of life, it came from the Desert Fathers almost 17, 1800 years ago, a monastic community of mystics living in Egypt around the third century. And, and the most well-known rule of life is the Benedictine order. It was written 1500 years ago, and it, it helps create a community of monks translate their faith into the habits and rhythms of their shared daily life. His famous rule has inspired many communities and individuals to develop their own rules in a similar fashion, okay? So this is what a rule of life is. It's a group of people saying we're going to be particularly formed in a way, in exclusion to the way around us. And the Benedictine order has lasted 1,500 years because they wrote it down and there was a community who held it tightly. And I'm not saying, like, I don't like the Benedictine order. I can give you a bunch of reasons why I don't. But I think that there's power in a group of people saying we want to be particularly shaped and we want it to look like God rather than the world around us. And so how do we do that? It starts with intentionality. We can't just let the world shape us in whatever way it comes at us. Because that's what's happening right now, right? Whatever, there's an algorithm that's being fed to you. And you just swipe and receive whatever comes next. For a lot of us, it's in our work lives. We have no intentionality. And we let our work drive our whole schedule, our values, who we relate to, where we live. We receive from the world a set of rules, and then we craft our life around the rule of this world. But if you want a rule of life that's crafted in the way of the kingdom, we have to start with intentionality to say, our life is going to be shaped by listening to the Father and doing what He's called us to. It's going to be shaped by listening to the Father, by letting Him shape us. It's going to be responsive. It's not going to be something that is uh, something that's created by us. Um, it's going to feel like a creative exercise, like, ooh, I'm going to make a, a pretty rule of life, and it's going to have, like, these rhythms. And I was, in a, I was in a program in seminary. It was like a discipleship and spiritual formation program, and we would do, like, these annual rule of life retreats where we would have to come up with a creative way to express our, our individualistic rule of life. It was the most millennial thing I've ever done. And uh, it was, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're listening to the Father and responding to his call. It's not about us individually. It's about us as a community listening to the Father and being shaped. It's meant to not be a striving for some sort of perfected life. Um, we've talked about it a bit, but there's, there's a whole industry of people who are trying to help you live your best life through ambition and through discipline. That's the good news of this world, is that if you have enough ambition, enough discipline, you can do anything. That's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is to be filled with grace. And so we are settled, and our whole identity has been given to us by the Father of the universe, saying, this is who you are. And then, filled with grace, we're empowered by the Spirit to do the good works He set before us, and to pursue God because he has initiated with us and we're responding to him, okay? So everything we talk about in the rule of life is not us trying to muster more strength to be more like Jesus. It's a spirit-empowered response to God's invitation to grow deeper in love with him and to love and know him better. 
And the last part that we need to understand about a rule of life is that it's not meant for you, it's meant for us. Okay? Here's the thing. If you create a rule of life, it's going to be built on your personal, individual, um, like, self-mastery. It's going to be about you becoming the best version of you. And that's fine. That's fine. I don't care. Do that if you want. But that's not what a rule of life is. The rule of life that we're given is the one that's given to us by Jesus to learn his way. And so most of our rule of life is going to look similar. And it's meant that the way that our instincts are going to be shaped in the way of the kingdom is going to be through people around us challenging us to change our rule of life. Because your, your rule of life that you're living right now is out of sync with God's way. And until you have somebody saying, hey, um, you know how you work 70 hours a week because your boss makes you? That's not the way of the kingdom. And until somebody tells you that you have the freedom to listen to the Father and set aside a day a week to live in Sabbath, you won't challenge the world around you and the cultural liturgies that are heaped on you. Until you have somebody say, hey, the way that you're living is out of sync with the kingdom, you're not going to change, and so we need to do it together, and we need the accountability of transformation, and most of the time it's going to be the same because we're in a community and our rhythms need to bond together, okay? So we have a set of values as a community that speak to our shared life and rhythms that that we're going to work through this summer, Um, and you can, if you go on our website, you can see them under our beliefs um, and it's also a part of the broader uh, movement that we're part of, the syndicate and the underground movement. It's our core values. And what I want to do is I want to ask, as we craft a rule of life as a people, is what are the outworkings of this set of values that we have adopted as a community? Um, just a quick plug. The syndicate, our movement of local microchurches, there's about five, 700 people who are part of 30 microchurches across our city. We're going to have a family reunion all together on August 28th, um, and we're going to have baptisms and a picnic down at Municipal Park, so put that on your calendars. It's going to be, it was a really sweet time last year to get to know some of our family across the city, so put that on your deals. Okay, so our values are going to shape our future, and um, our the elder team has been spending a lot of time the last few months talking about what our bylaws, we we're a baby organization, and we don't have bylaws, and so we're trying to adopt some bylaws to give us some, some shape to our community, um, and we're going to be sharing those with you here probably in the next week or two, um, but those are the expression of how we live out our values, and this week we're going to be talking about these rhythms that we do together, okay? So last week, the core value that we jumped into was living the way of Jesus and learning his liturgy. Um, that's the true north of our community. Um, our choices, everything we do, we're going to look at Jesus and ask, well, how do we do that? We're going to look at our lives and ask, does it look like him? And what do we need to stop doing or start doing in light of this mandate? So you probably wrote down, if you wrote down something last week, I hope it was something to stop and something to start as a part of this rule of life that we're crafting. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you got your Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 10 says this in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. I think we got it. Okay. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So this starts off where we've been, which is that God has torn apart the curtain and created this new priestly class under the great high priest Jesus who rules over God's house. And instead of having to wait in the outer courtyards like those Gentiles of the past, we can enter in boldly into God's presence. And I I love this last line. With sincere hearts, fully trusting him. This is... This is the grace of Jesus, is that we can enter into his presence with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. This is our worship. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. This is, this is a real simple reference to the blood atonement of Jesus' 
Jesus' death on the cross that made a way for no more blood sacrifices of bulls in the Holy of Holies, and then our bodies washed clean through baptism, which is this symbol of belonging to God's family. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some do, but encourage one another, especially now as the day of his return is drawing near. Okay, so we're going to be asking as we read each of these passages, what does this look like as a rule of life for Redemption Hill and our microchurches primarily? We see that it starts with God's grace, that it opens up into this welcoming into his presence and his family, and then the outworking of belonging to his family and being given grace is we motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Now note, it does not say shame one another into acts of love and good works. The word motivate is this positive, it's exhortation, it's an invitation to, to obedience, rather than saying Tisk tisk, you did not do good works. We are we motivate one another good works. And then it tells us how to do that. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some do, but build each other's courage, encourage one another. This this is the way. So, okay, first thing we're gonna talk about our cultural, our our kingdom liturgy that we're building is that we gather. We gather as God's people because it's where we're formed in the way. We need one another. Um, and we need it to be an encouragement, and we need it to be motivation, okay? So when we gather together, it's not about trying to coerce one another into good works. It's about building one another up, motivating, encouraging, and that's why we celebrate regularly what God's doing in our community, is because what we celebrate is who we're becoming, and so we want to celebrate the good works that God's doing. Okay, some of this we can do all together on Sundays, but most of the rhythms we're going to talk about have to happen in microchurch, have to happen in smaller spaces, because in a room with 150 people, it's hard to know one another. Like even over the last year, you were basically doubled in size. There's a lot of you I don't talk to over the course of a month because you're talking with other people on Sundays. It used to be easier. We were smaller. There was 40 or 50 adults, and we could hang out and have a conversation most weeks. That can't happen anymore. And so microchurch becomes the place where we're known by one another. Weekly gatherings with thousands of people, it cannot shape you in the way of Jesus because you need encouragement. We need to be known, and we need to be spurred on. So as good as Sundays are, they're just a taste of what the real thing is, which is this belonging to people. Uh, so let's keep going. There's a lot of verses I want to I cover about what it means to craft a rule of life in the way. So we're going to go to the original, the OG church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's just get a picture of what they were doing at the very beginning. I think it still speaks to us today. All the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. I think that's it, right? <laughs> like, if we do those things, that's us being church together. When, when we talk about microchurch, that's the essence. We have the apostles' teaching, which is understanding who God is, knowing Jesus. We have fellowship, which is shared life together, including meals that we eat. And then we have prayer. And this, the hospitality at the table is this open space for people to enter into community. That's a lot of mission. Teaching and prayer is this deep connection with the Father, and teaching and fellowship is where formation happens, our up-in-and-out triangle that we talk about. The, the bare necessity of microchurch was there at the very beginning. And it says, A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place, in the temple courts, and they shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions. They shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. And then they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, 
all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is what it looks like to do. Like, I love that at the very beginning, you have a mega church gathering in the courtyards. 3,000 people are added to their number right away. And then immediately they go, this isn't going to work. And so what do they do? They get down into house-sized extended families where they'd gather together around the table to learn the way. Okay? Big, little, gather, scattered. That's the rhythm of the kingdom is the gathered and scattered people. So I'd like to say this first church was a microchurch movement with mega-sized gatherings. That's why we say both and. We think that God is at work on Sundays, and we think that God's at work in our households throughout the week. We want both to be a part of what we do. Um, they had shared life. The, the beautiful picture of this that's, I think, so powerful still today is that this is a picture of God's kingdom. People deeply related to one another and sharing all things in common. Now, this may not bode well with your American sense of capitalism, but the early church said, you know what? Everything God's given me is not mine. I'm going to sell what I don't need, and I'm going to make it available to those in need in my community. That's, that's what it looks like here when they first believed in the way of Jesus. It's also how it will look in the kingdom age. And so we're in the middle space where we're trying to see this sort of generosity bloom and come to life, this sort of openness. And we've, we have, I, I think as a community, we share pretty well. Joe is always borrowing my tools. I'm always borrowing Ernie's tools because Ernie has the best tools. Um, and uh, I'm always calling Andy to come to my house to help with projects. My dad is always calling Andy to his house to help with projects. Andy doesn't call. He's, 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 got, it, he's got it wrapped up. <laughs> he's got good tools too. So if you ever need woodworking tools, go to Andy. You're welcome, Andy. Uh, <clears throat> but this, like, we're, we, we've even tried to, like, create space where we can say the things that God's given us so that we can make them available to the community. And that's how we should think about our homes. Everything in your home was entrusted to you for the people who are going to need it, including that extra room in your house. You probably have an extra room in your house that God's entrusted to you. There might be somebody that needs that room. Uh, you might have a, a, an RV pad in your, on your property, and that RV pad is meant to house a family. We have about 600 Afghan refugees that are being resettled here this year, another 300 Ukrainians who are probably going to land, and we have this many open housing units across our city. And so there's something that God might have entrusted to you that you need to make available to his people and to people outside of the kingdom even. And so I want, I want to challenge you to start thinking about that. Um, I, I've been working with a group that started a website called howsyourneighbor.org, and it's all about finding creative ways to release open housing opportunities in our city like rooms, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, um, or even like I'm working with the city on a, they're doing a, a tiny house pilot program where 50 people are putting tiny homes on existing properties that can be plumbed permanently in place. So there's, there's some cool things happening, but this is, this is the way of the kingdom. We, are, we live generosity. Like, that's who we are. That's what we do. Amen. She knows. Audrey gets it. Okay, let's keep going. Colossians chapter 3.16. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Okay, this is real simple. The message of Christ, literally those red words in the Gospels, the things that were taught to the apostles, fill your lives with them teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. And so when you're having conversations and there's a problem in someone's life, what's the question we ask? What's the one question that we should always ask when anyone has anything going on in their lives? What does God want you to do? What's God doing in the middle of this? Those sorts of questions open up room to say, Let's let God teach us in this situation, not just theoretically on a Sunday. 
when you have a work situation and you don't know what to do and you're trying to decide to take a new job or not take a new job, that's a great time to stop and say, okay, what does God say? What does he value? What is he doing in the midst of this? And listen to the Father together. So we teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Have you guys ever read that verse and go, is he just using a triplet or are there three different things there? Like, I, I honestly don't know what the difference is between a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song. Like, it, particularly a 2,000 years ago, who knows what he's talking about? Like, I mean, are we talking like Maranatha versus elevation versus like slave spirituals? I don't, I don't know, like, what, what, but there's some singing, okay? So some of you aren't like singing people. Like, I love music, but like, you know, worship on Sundays isn't like the main way I connect with God, but it's supposed to be a part of what we do. It's who we are. We are people of the song, and I think a big part about that is songs are liturgy. Songs and the words in them lodge themselves in this place in your brain you don't have any access to, and I'm sure you're thinking about that one song you don't want to think about right now. You think about it yet? That one song that's lodged in the back of your head that you don't want to forget? The, the one that I always think about is in, in Boston on the radio. It was 1877 Cars for Kids. 1877 Cars for Kids. So that's, that's in your head. You're welcome. Um, I actually, that was, that was in the, the movie, uh, what was it called? Inside Out, yeah, they use that as like the, the one you couldn't get rid of. That's, that's the one that's always in the back of my head. Songs lodge themselves in your brain. You can't get away from them. That's a part of our liturgy, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You cannot become people of the way on your own because... You're a tiny part of the body. The whole body needs you, and you need the whole body. Maybe you need some blood flow to make sure that that liver actually does what it's meant to do. Maybe you need some, you know, some nerve endings to make your eye work. All of us need one another. And so make sure that we're connected to one another. That's why we gather. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Through him, you Gentiles are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. The, the liturgy that we're supposed to live out is a unified body, one people. We are unified as Gentiles and Jews, brought together as one people. That's what we talked about all winter as we walk through Ephesians. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. There's a structure to how we do our life together, and that's that God puts some people in charge of a community, and they are confirmed by His Spirit speaking to the community together, and that's how we have arranged our little community here, is that God has appointed elders in our church, and right now that's myself and Bob and Cindy, and we're hoping to add more as the opportunity arises. Acts chapter 16, verse 4, then they went from town to town instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem so the church were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. So there's some connection that we have with the broader life of the church through apostolic leaders who call us to faithfulness in the way of Jesus. And we have connections with the New Thing Network and with Ecclesia and with a citywide movement called the City Network, and also with the Syndicate, which is our body of microchurches. We believe that God gives authority to his people to keep us in alignment with what he wants. And so we align ourselves alongside his people. Acts chapter 20, verse 20. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. This is a part of our liturgy is truth-telling. The part that all of us love, Right? Some of you are like, yeah, I want to tell the truth all the time. And some of you are like, yeah, my spouse wants to tell the truth all the time. And it's, that's a part of what we do is we speak truthfully and we call one another to faithfulness. Um, and here's something that I think God gave me this morning as I was preparing. And this is something that some of you need to hear. Your rhythms of gathering, 
your rhythms of connection in microchurch and with our gathering. They're too thin and they're too seldom. It falls too far below the priority it was meant to be in your life. This is something that's secondary or tertiary to you. But what does God tell us? Do not forsake the gathering together because this is where we become his people. I don't know if that's for you, but it's probably for you if you're feeling it. <laughs> that's probably what it is. But I, I want to tell you, when, when you're thinking about it, I, the Sunday gathering is nice, but what I really want to see is you living out your life in microchurch. Okay? Microchurch is where everything that should happen happens. We can't do everything here all together. And so if you have to choose between Sundays all together and microchurch, choose microchurch. My bet is you don't have to choose. But if, that, if there's a choice, that's our choice, okay? We want you to choose connection and in relationship with one another. All right. There's a bunch of other things that we could do. I'm not going to because it's 1149 and the youth are already here, so we better, we better keep going. Malia, if you want the service down on time, you just bring the youth in, and that gives me the trigger. All right. So let's think through this. Our running list of core values in, in how we do our community the rhythms that we're going to try to assimilate into a rule of life. Okay, so we have, there is a rhythm of gathering and scattering. There's a rhythm of all together, and there's a rhythm of microchurch, and there's a rhythm of the day-to-day life. And we need to get that into the right rhythm. Okay? There's rhythms of up, in, and out. And so all of our communities should have some element of deep connection with the Father through worship and prayer, disciple-making, and mission. And so whatever that looks like in your microchurch, every week you're probably not going to do all three, but over the course of the month there needs to be some expression of all three of those. Connection with God, the up, we need connection with one another, the in, and we need the out mission of the church. Um, Food, non-negotiable part of our rule of life. So write that one down. That was going in your rule of life. In, In homes... That's going to be a part of your rule of life because that's where we live. That's where we do our lives. It's got to be in homes. Large gatherings, that's a part of our rule of life. We do life even all together as a, as a movement. Shared resources, this is a part of our rule of life where what we have been given is given to the community. Um, generosity, communion, prayer, the message of Christ. We teach and we counsel one another. We've got psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, whatever those three things are. Um, Inclusive and diverse. That's got to be a part of our rule of life is that anybody can belong and that it looks like like the place that we live is diverse. It's not diverse because of where we live, but it should be as diverse as the place that we live. Um, We have elders who have authority and who teach. We say hard things to each other. And we all bring our gifts to the table, okay? So what does that look like in your micro churches, in your lives, when we pursue regular connection in covenant community? That's where we're transformed by our liturgies and our rhythms of God's way. So how are you going to do it? What are the things we need to stop doing and things we need to start doing in our micro churches? Well, I think there's three things I want to touch on. The first, it needs to be a high priority. If you're struggling to get together and you're struggling to share your life together, which includes my microchurch, it needs to be a higher priority for how we do our lives together. It needs to be regular gathering. Showing up actually makes a difference. Is it blocked out in your calendar? Do you have a predictable pattern of how you do life together? I know some of you do like an every other week schedule on a Monday night. Some of you do a monthly meal and a monthly service thing. We need to find ways that we're doing that together. And I'm talking to my microchurch, okay? We've got to figure these things out. Um, second, we need rhythms of gathering and scattering. Sundays all together, microchurch, huddles, discipleship, intentional disciple-making environments. We need to have those rhythms set in place. And then we need to have rhythms of up, in, and out. This is our rule of life 
as a network of micro churches that we're going to keep growing, but those are kind of some of the essential things. So that was, a, that was a lot of teaching and information today. As I was talking, what are the things that you're feeling God is speaking to you about? As I was sharing that list and those verses and giving examples, what was the thing that you said, that's what I need to work on next? Who wants to be vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Super, you know, well, which has made it like, to be honest, like very tempting to just like give in to sleeping in in the morning, which I do most mornings, because there's no rhythm. Mm-hmm. What does a new rhythm look like that's constantly aware of the invitations that the Lord is like placing in the season? Yeah. Transition times are such valuable times to shape your liturgy because it's already been jumbled up. You've lost something, and so you're creating something new. I think that's, yeah, that's really important. Like excitement over what's next. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Perfect time to do a rule of life. <laughs> Joe. Uh, trying to process how can our kids be a part of um, our microchurch, our ministry, or whatever, uh, rather than an obstacle. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, yeah, my, my, my mantra this last year has been as fast as our kids can go. Like, our pace is completely determined by our kids. So we don't move very fast around here. Well, you know? I feel like, yeah, even yeah, trying to be more intentional about what, what am I, the fact that we have kids, what, what strengths does that bring to the table mm-hmm. as opposed to just what weaknesses does that Yep. Hey, Robert, as a non-member um, here this week, kind of the finding ways to disrupt the mundane and create those new pathways that are the way that God would want me to. And by disrupt, it's a positive disruption, I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Ways to crack the cycle. Yeah. That's, That's Jeff. Jeff. Right? Yeah. Good to see you. What else? What's God disrupting? Patty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it requires us repenting of the cultural liturgies we've been receiving and us imagining a new way of being. And money is, those systems of this world are built into our financial systems. I was talking with a friend last week and one thing that came out of that conversation was the, the type of wealth that's available to us is Simplicity. The type of wealth that's available to us comes through simplicity. That's how we can disrupt the materialism and consumerism and the debt cycle that this world wants to heap on us. As we choose to say no to consuming, say no to more stuff, live simply, and then it frees up time, mental energy, takes away our stress, Simplicity is this powerful potion to overcome the ambitions of this world. So, I, yeah, I think, Patty, that's like right there for a lot of us going, if I can, if I can figure out how to live simply, it transforms the, my relationship with this world in such powerful ways. Yeah? So our whole life with church has been ending one thing and not knowing what the next thing is. So we're at this very weird, I say, well, I'm at this very weird place of, like, kids are older. I'm not, I always knew I was a public parent. Like, that was never questioned. I was very clear and concise, and that was lovely just to have that calling. But I don't know what happens next. I mean, what? The calling you. It, it does, at least for my kids. But does that mean I'm called to start parenting other kids? So just take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Should I just pause here? Yes, yes you, you should, should pause here. Right. You should pause here. Sit in this moment and let God shape the new rule of life rather than just letting it come because it comes at you, being intentional. Absolutely. All right, anybody else before we move on? I'll invite the band to come on up as the last, as the last person shares. Anybody else want to say something? I feel like there's one more. Just got sense. Sean. I, I missed the first part. Uh huh. Yeah, if you're going 100 miles an hour and you stop, it takes a long time to kind of like have enough energy to actually be present and do the work of intentionally creating something. That's why the rhythms of rest and simplicity are the ones that enable us to shape a life of intentionality. So I think that's really good, man. All right. Thanks for engaging. I think that this is an important work that we're doing together, and it's, um, I'm excited to see how, how it unfolds over the summer. Um, I'll, I'll be preaching and teaching a lot less because I want you guys to hear other voices over the summer, and I'd like some time off. Let's be honest about that. Um, but thank you for joining me today. Let's pray as we end our, our morning in worship. Lord God, uh, your word is full of these amazing examples of what it looks like to be your people, and we've tasted it at times in our lives. But we pray, God, that you, you would stoke a kingdom imagination in us about peculiar ways to embody your kingdom in a world that's opposed to you, in a world of systems that are pulling us away from the life of abundance and truth and joy that you bring. Lord God, give us the sort of courage to say no and to stop and to listen. And may the rule of life that we, that we receive from you together, may the values of your kingdom just permeate our day in and day out rhythms as we seek your face. God, give us the courage to say yes to your invitation. Give us the courage to say no and to stop the things that are holding us back from you. Give us the strength that when the world pushes back, we say, I'm pursuing another kingdom. Lord God, have your way in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Voices. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.